0: Thank you, Ron, for that. Thanks for reading that passage from Romans 8. All right, so I hope you guys didn't lose your place in Romans there. Uh, We're going to turn back to it, and we're going to focus on one verse there. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It is God that justifies. So we have to ask ourselves how can God justify? How ask yourself that question? How can God justify? Now let's go ahead and turn over to uh, Revelation chapter 13 and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Revelation 13 verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat in great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months." And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So um kind of obscure passages there well they don't seem to relate to each other so much but that that last verse we're going to get back to so so, so the topic of the sermon is God's justification specifically the beginning of justification So I have another question for you other than how can God justify where does the justification of God's people begin and end? And I think the answer is right there in that verse 8 which we read. And I'll read it again. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So I'll that's an answer to our question there. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna talk to you today on, on the doctrine or the teaching of eternal justification, or as John Gill, one of my favorite theologians of the past used to call it justica- justification from eternity. So, so for your reference, Ron, tonight's message is titled God's Eternal Justification and uh, this doctrine, this teaching it's, some have called it a deep doctrine, uh, one that we shouldn't make a big deal about—but it's a big deal to me. I think it's a very big deal to me because of the uh, practical implications of this teaching, which I'll get to at the end of the sermon. You, you see, the the doctrine of God's justification of His people—it has a beginning. In this beginning, it's not necessarily when one comes to believe the gospel, as is often taught. It's not when Christ died on the cross, but the beginning of justification, the beginning is found in God. It's found in his purpose. And since God is eternal, and his counsel is eternal, then God's justification of his people is also eternal, meaning it's before the world even began. And before the foundation of the world, there were many predestinated and chosen in Christ. They were predestinated to the adoption of God's children, which is made evident in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, which I read earlier. I'm going to try to read again later. And if you read in 2 Timothy verses. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it's evident that God's people were given in Christ Jesus before the world began. This means that before the world began, you and I, who now rest in Christ, well, we were viewed in union with Christ. We were given to Christ, and we were viewed in Christ. And all of this was in eternity And it's this union with Christ. This is the grounds for every saving benefit that we receive. There is nothing that we have received in terms of grace and mercy that cannot be traced back to this union. All of our salvation, it was all purposed and declared in God's eternal counsel from before the foundation of the world, which also includes before time itself. And all of this purposing and declaring of grace from God's eternal counsel included nothing about our own personal merit or inherent worth. It didn't include any action on our part. It's strictly focused on our Lord. It's focused on the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, that's not to say our salvation Uh, doesn't comprise of many different parts. Uh, Theologians like to refer to the term um, ordus salutis, which means the order of salvation. It's a Latin term. and uh, So there's an order to God's predestinating plan of salvation. And and if you do a Google search or look up the term ordus salutis on Wikipedia, you, you can see a chart that shows where are all the different theological camps considered to be the order of salvation. And on this chart on Wikipedia, you can look it up, you can, you can see they've got different camps. You've got the Calvinist camp, the Armenian camp, the Lutheran camp, et cetera. And I was looking at this chart uh, earlier this week and uh, not one of these camps, in my opinion, lists justification where it belongs. Every single camp, at least according to Wikipedia, has justification appearing in the order of salvation sometime after we experience the gift of faith. But that's really inaccurate, if you ask me about it. And it's true that we experience our justification through faith, but our actual justification before God, well, that took place in an eternity. And I think the reason people either exclude this teaching or flat out reject it, I think it's because it stems from a lack of knowledge of the scriptures. And in my opinion, the doctrine or teaching of justification, it's it's really a lost teaching today. You don't hear it taught from most of the pulpits, you don't hear it preached on the radio. Instead you hear platitudes and self help being preached. But I believe that this doctrine of justification is a core teaching of the scriptures. And sadly enough, I don't even hear it preached in the so-called Calvinistic circles, and I don't really like using that term, but it's a popular label. Uh, And if you do hear it preached, you don't usually hear it preached to the point where it's traced back to its origin uh, from before the foundation of the world. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world is hardly ever mentioned. And I believe if this teaching is left out of the preaching and teaching, then you're left having a watered-down gospel, one that has no guidance. And by not including this doctrine of justification, specifically justification from eternity in preaching today, I I believe that a a giant void is left in the Christian message. I think it's a void that's so large that, that the space that it leaves, it can be filled with countless errors generated by the vain imagination of men's minds. John Gill, like I said, one of my favorite theologians, he, he uh, once wrote that the doctrine of justification by the righteousness of Christ is one of great importance and the apostle paul spoke of it as if as if the essence of the gospel lay in it so to rephrase that into a question we must ask ourselves is there a gospel if the doctrine of justification is not included in its message well john gill answers that question for us he says it is a fundamental article of the gospel and so much so that some have called it the basis of christianity and i agree I agree with that. The doctrine of justification, the teaching of justification is the basis of Christianity. We hear Jim preach over and over with the question, how can God be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Christ? It's the basis of our faith. So what exactly is it? You know, we we hear terms thrown around all the time and sometimes we just gloss over the terms. I know I used to do that when I was a kid reading the scriptures. I I'd, I'd be reading long in the Bible and I'd see this word predestination. what does that mean? Well, I don't know, I'm just going to keep on reading. but uh, we, we shouldn't do that because justification, to justify, to be made just, those are biblical terms. and it's not it's not made up in some theological textbook. It, it's right here in the scriptures. Paul talks about this term quite a bit in the book of Romans. In Romans 4.25, he says, Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. In the next chapter, in verse 16, Paul wrote, in Romans 5.16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so was the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. And two verses down, he he says again, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So what does this term mean? What does justification mean? What does it mean to justify someone? Well, I think when you, when you answer questions like that, when, you, when you're presented with a question like that where you don't know, I think it's sometimes best to start with answering in the negative or answering what justification is not. So I'm just going to flat out tell you what I think. Justification, it's not a feeling. It's not conversion. It's not, it's not believing on Christ. It's not a change of our inward heart. And it's not an infusion of goodness into our being. And I think that, to the surprise of many, the word justified can also be applied to God himself. Let's take a look at Luke 7, verse 29. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But Christ in the previous version, previous verses of Luke chapter seven, he was talking about John the Baptist to the people that were gathered around him there, and uh, he wrote in verse 29 of Luke seven, and all the publicans that heard him, and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John, they justified God. So ask yourself, did they make God righteous? Do they put righteousness into God? It's kind of a ridiculous question, if you ask me. but uh, Because nobody can make God righteous, can they? Now let's take a look at 1 Timothy 3.16. And you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So it's right there that God, in the flesh of Christ, was justified in the Spirit. Now let's bounce back to Luke 10, 29. And you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, but Luke writes, But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so this is the lawyer that's talking to, to Jesus and asking himself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds to him with the parable of the good Samaritan. But this this good this lawyer wanted to justify himself. And in Luke six fifteen, Jesus said to the Pharisees that they justify themselves before men. And going to dig some more into the scriptures here. In Romans 3, verse 4, Paul writes, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And this is written with uh, Psalm 51, verse 4 in mind, which reads, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. To justify someone does not mean to make someone righteous, but to declare someone is righteous. When the people justified God, they, constitute, they constituted or declared God as righteous in their minds, and with their mouths declared he was righteous. And that's what it means to justify. And that is because he is righteous. And when the self-righteous Pharisees, they wanted to justify themselves, well, they falsely declared themselves to be righteous. They were declaring that they were righteous in and of themselves. Their justification was a false justification. They had deluded themselves into thinking they were righteous. They stated they were righteous by their seemingly good deeds but that doesn't mean God saw them as righteous, and that's what's important. He's the one who matters. As he's the one that matters the most because he's the judge of all the earth. And I'll remind you of our opening text today, Romans 8 and verse 33. Ron read it earlier. Paul stated that it is God that justifies. Not men, not the court system, not churches, not denominations, a God so I hope you understand what it means to justify now and if you don't we can talk after the service but uh, it means to, to declare righteous and then there are also different aspects or perspectives of this word of this this word justification and Paul speaks of these different aspects and I think the first perspective is semen seen in Romans 3 Three and verse twenty-four, and you can go ahead and turn there if you like. Uh, Romans three, verse twenty-four. One of my favorite passages in the whole, whole Bible. Paul writes, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to be justified. Freely by his grace in Christ means without any cause or action being performed by the person that is being justified. Now turn over a couple chapters to chapter 5 and look at verse 1. And this is another aspect. It's written from the perspective of the one being justified. The one being declared righteous by God, which will be us. Therefore, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, we experience God's justification of our souls through faith. And that faith is alone. Skip to verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Okay, now that's an actual time where we're justified. That's Christ's death on the cross. We're justified by his blood. That's just, that's just another perspective of justification. It's, it's the time where Christ procured our justification in fulfilling the covenant he, he made with his Father and the Spirit to justify his people through his blood. But Let's go back even further. Let's trace our, or, our justification back to the origin, back to the beginning, back to its first cause, where does justification first appear? Does it appear in time? Or does it appear first in eternity? John Gill. Oh, I can't say enough about the guy. I really like him. But uh, he wrote the following. He says, Justification is a sentence conceived in the mind of God as a decree from eternity. This this justification of us believers it originates in the mind of God. That is, it was an eternal and imminent act. The word imminent means in the mind. And this justification of ours, it was in the mind of God. God is eternal as he is eternity itself. And I don't have time to get into the scriptures on that, but I'd be happy to talk to you all about that later too. Time itself flows from the mind of God because he is transcendent of all time and all of space itself. In another sermon I preached last year, I explained how God does not change. That is, he is immutable. It means our justification originates in the mind and purpose of God, and not after time. After we fell into sin in time. God didn't change his mind about us. He didn't change his mind when Christ died on the cross, nor after we were brought to repentance and faith. Our justification from God originates in eternity and the eternal covenant of grace. And this line of thought, having received all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world, which we read earlier, this line of thought's almost always immediately met with skepticism and criticism in the Christian world, the so-called Christian world. And I've even seen sovereign grace preachers who cannot understand this call what I'm talking about here heresy, because they just can't understand it. They some of them have even broken off fellowship with this church over it, believe it or not. They can't wrap their minds around this line of thought and reasoning. And they they ask us, well, how in the world can God justify us before we've sinned, before Christ atoned for our sins, and before we demonstrated faith in Christ? Well, I'll answer their question with a question. How is it that Christ is said to be the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world? We read that earlier, Revelation 13.8. How was that possible? Well, for me, the answer is rather simple, at least to my mind. Uh, Christ, the Lamb, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He was the perfect Lamb. He was without spot or blemish. He was the perfect substitute. And his foreordination to die for us was not after man had sinned either. We've heard it said from this pulpit many, many times Before there ever was a sinner, there was a savior. Before there ever was a world created, there was a union between Christ and his elect people. Before the world, from the very beginning, in God's eternal purpose, in God's eternal covenant of grace and redemption, and it was there, in God's mind, in his purpose, the elect of God are seen Constituted and declared as being in the Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, and therefore justified, it is there that God the Son became the surety of all of His people. We see this in Roman in Hebrew seven verse twenty two. Let me read it to you. Hebrew seven twenty two. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Jesus. He was the answer to our sin debt. He made himself to be held to account for his people so that all that was required of us as debtors would be satisfied and paid in full. We read about suretyship of Christ in Genesis. Chapter 43 and verse 8, when Judah pledged himself as a surety for Benjamin. And all of us here tonight were God's little Benjamins. Or to little Benjamins be brought safely into an everlasting relationship with the Father. So if Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that means the Father viewed Christ's atonement as our surety, as having happened, his death, before it even happened. Speaking of sureties, I, I, this was interesting. Solomon warns that it's not good to become a surety for a stranger. You can read that in Proverbs chapter 6. But why does he say that? Well, if the debtor fails, then the shirt he's got to pay. Imagine walking up to your to a stranger down at the Kroger or at Walmart or at the car dealership. And let's say you're at the car dealership and the stranger wants to get a loan. And you just walk in and say, yeah, I'll, I'll agree to co-sign for that loan for you. Well, If that stranger doesn't pay back the loan, you're the one that has to pay back the loan. That's why it's not good to be a surety for a stranger. But in the covenant of grace, our Lord knew there was no way that we could pay back our debt. Yet he still agreed to be our surety. But we're no strangers to Christ. He counts us as his brothers and sisters. We are given to him. The father counts us as his children. Most of us, we we might co-sign a loan for those we hold most dear to us. Maybe not everyone, everybody in our family, but uh, you know we might consider co-signing a loan for our, our children or, or sons and our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers. Uh, definitely, you would for your wife, I mean, <laughs> but we wouldn't do it for a stranger, would we? Not unless we were Donald Trump and had that kind of money, but uh, I don't think I'd do it even then. <laughs> but uh, but all of our sins, every last one of them, they were imputed to, to our surety, Christ. In other words, they were charged to him. He was made to pay our sin debt. They were imputed to him, our Lord, our surety. And our sins, they've never been charged to us. We're racking up a debt, but we don't have to pay the bill. Somebody already did for us. And our sins will never be imputed to us, ever. My old standby uh, writer, Augustus Toplady, he once wrote the following. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured, the whole of wrath divine payment God will not twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine and God who viewed all of this from eternity he saw it as already complete and finished it was done and finished in the mind of God before the world even began remember God doesn't view the events of this world simply as an observer He's not watching things and changing his mind based on what's happening around us. He's immutable. He he changes not. His mind does not change. And we've been safe and secure in him from eternity and for all eternity. And all the things that he's decreed that will happen throughout history, they've already been done, good is done from our Lord's perspective. And this includes our salvation, and our justification. Jesus, he's always been our surety, and hence our justification has always been sure. So to further answer the critics of this teaching of justification from eternity, or their question on how can God justify before creation, remember how Paul said that Abraham was the father of many nations even before it happened? Look at Romans 4 and verse 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him who he he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham was without child and had a barren wife. But in the mind of God... And enough so, with enough confidence, he was the father. He could say that he was the, Abraham was the father of many nations. And that's because God is all-powerful and sovereign. Everything he's decreed will come to pass with absolute certainty. And he's so powerful, he doesn't need to wait to see his decree played out in time. It's as good as done. He's, and... Because God is transcendent of time. He sees all of time at once. I like to think of eternity in time like this. Imagine God looking over the entire history of time. He sees this creation. He sees Adam's fall into sin. He sees Christ dying for his people. And he sees us being born and being brought to faith. And he sees this all at once because he decreed it. He's not subject to the change of time. He's not changed by the things of time. Time itself, if you look it up in a dictionary, it's going to be defined as a change from one moment to the next. But not God. He's timeless. He doesn't change. That's what it means to be timeless, to be, is not to change. He creates time, but he isn't changed by it. Did you ever see that movie, Back to the Future? Uh, where the main character uh, Marty travels into the future. Well, if you could build a time machine, you could not escape the attention of our all seeing Lord. If you could go back in time, you're not escaping his presence. He sees all of time, all from eternity, which is his inhabitants. And eternity is not an extension of time either. You know, I've heard many Christian writers and speakers use the term eternity past or eternity future to try to explain before the foundation of the world and heaven and whatnot. But in my opinion, these terms are really misnomers. Um, Time in all actuality cannot extend into eternity. Everything is timeless in eternity. We only speak of so-called eternity past or eternity future because our feeble minds, which are subject to time, have difficulty describing something that is timeless. So I like to imagine all of time light out before God, sort of like on a ruler. This is a little analogy. I've kind of come up with in my mind, uh, where he sees the creation of the world at the beginning of the ruler, and at the end of the ruler, he sees all of us being glorified in heaven. and in the middle of the ruler, it's it's Christ dying for our sins. And he's he's looking down on this ruler, and he sees it all at once. It's a very crude demonstration of what I think it means for God to view the events of time from eternity. But, you know, it's hard to talk about the timelessness of God without using timely words to describe his timelessness. God is so much bigger than our feeble minds can comprehend. My mind just boggles trying to think of how who God is and what he is and all of his attributes and when you sit and contemplate on 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 them it just my mind just it just blows up just trying to even comprehend it. You know I, how can how can us as creatures describe the Creator without the perspective of the creator? How you know, imagine you're you've got a little child or a pet dog or a pet cat. How how could they talk about our perspective of them? You know, I had to take a cat to the vet today. Well, the cat doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, because that pet has such a limited view of of the world and, uh, and a limited view of its master. And the same is true for us and our creator. We can only go by for to try to understand our Lord by what's written in his word. But... But to get back on topic, there, there's, there's neither past nor future in eternity. There is, however, an order, a logical order of God's decrees, but order and planning doesn't necessitate time. There is an order to his plans, but those orders are not necessarily in relation to time. So the decrees of God from eternity, while, while eternity may be timeless, nevertheless, it's very real. And our justification, while it is from eternity, doesn't make it less real from God's perspective. It's so real that God's will or purpose to justify his people from eternity is the justification of his people. His purpose is that strong, so sure and so strong, that nothing can be done to change the outcome. God himself, theoretically, he cannot change the outcome because he said that he doesn't change. He's not going to change his mind at a later date. He's not even in a later date. He's he's in eternity, directing all things, all the things of time. And when he decreed our salvation, it was as good as done. It also follows that our purpose, that God's purpose to adopt us is our adoption. His purpose to sanctify us is our sanctification. His purpose to glorify us in his Son is our glorification. In God's mind and purpose, we are glorified. We we haven't yet experienced it yet. We haven't yet experienced glorification, but just like our justification, it's as good as done. The accomplishment of our glorification is sure, and I'm so certain that it cannot and will not fail because God has purposed it in his eternal decree. We read about it in the scriptures. We're already glorified in God's sight, although we have yet to experience it. And furthermore, you could say that God's purpose to elect us to salvation, that was our election. God's will to save, that was our salvation. God's will that the Son would die in time guaranteed that Christ would die and God's will to justify his people is our justification. And that's going to be that statement right there is going to be met with with objections by people everywhere. And I've seen many skeptics of this teaching. I've seen I've seen the topic hotly debated before by free willers and you know, people online that like to call themselves calvinists. They talk about what they call the heresy of eternal justification. That's because their minds cannot comprehend an eternal God one that is timeless and immutable. They can't conceive of justification as an eternal and imminent act of God. I think it's because those that argue against justification being from eternity get hung up on the term of justification itself. They're only familiar with the experiential aspect of justification that is what we experience by faith. But in my opinion, I think what is really happening is they just have a wrong understanding of God. They don't understand who he is. They don't know what his inhabitants is. They don't understand that he inhabits eternity. Indeed, that he is eternity. And that all of his purpose flows from eternity. And in all actuality, they have a God that is affected by the things of time. They have a God sitting somewhere in the heavens, watching the things of the earth play out, and then making decisions based on what happens in time. The avowed free willer, for example, they think their God is watching our lives, watching us go through life, and then seeing faith in us, and then saving us because God saw our faith. That, quite frankly, is not only a false understanding of salvation, but it's also a false understanding of of God. And even so-called Calvinists, the, the Reformed persuasion, they, they look at it almost in the same way sometimes, or a good chunk of the time. They see a God in the heavens watching the events of time, and then they, and God sees our faith, and they say it's at that exact moment when we demonstrate faith that we are now justified in God's sight. Their view of God is not much different than the free willer understanding. If you ask me, they still have a God that changes based on what's happening, and so I, I would say the two systems of thought are not are they're, well they're not dissimilar. They're very similar to each other. They both have a God that's dependent upon things happening in time before He can justify. So if you strip eternity or the true meaning of eternity from God and replace its meaning with one that, that defines eternity as something that is an extension of time, well, I think you're left with a shell of a God. You're left with a false God, to be, be frank with you. And not the God of Daniel 4.35, who says, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as Nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? I know that's a favorite verse of of Jim's. And um, I I know I started out this evening's service with Ephesians 1, and we read it again. We read it on Sunday night, but I'm going to ask you to turn there again just to, to let it sink in. And we'll start in verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Take a look at that verse 1 again. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings. Would you not suppose that justification is a spiritual blessing? And did we not have all spiritual blessings in Christ before the foundation of the world? As verse 2 states... And isn't eternity from before the foundation of the world? It's pretty plain to see from this passage alone that we've been justified from before the foundation of the world. That's my opinion, that we've been justified from eternity. Before we were born or even committed sin against our Lord, we were justified. And we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and Second Timothy one nine, that we were given grace before the foundation of the world. Why would we not think justification was a part of that? And let's think back to the saints of the Old Testament. Were they justified before Christ came into the world and died for their sins? Some people say no. But Romans 4, Paul says in Romans 4, he says that Abraham was justified. And and if you look in Romans 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The only way they could be justified was by Christ's death and satisfaction on the cross. Long after the events of their time had passed. Yet these saints of God were justified by Christ. So, I believe that the, the scriptures are confident in saying that we're justified because Christ had a view to that future event. Of Christ dying, and viewed that event as it had already happened. That's why he could say, "You're justified, Abraham. You're justified, Noah." It was a done deal in the mind of God. And then I love this this verse, Jeremiah thirty-one, three. It says that the Lord loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, He has drawn thee. God doesn't love the wicked, but He loves the righteous. And the righteous have always been seen as righteous in God's sight. And in Ephesians 1, Paul states that this love was manifested in Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. Our justification, it's found in the mind and the purpose of God. It finds its substance in Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Our justification, and no doubt in my mind, it's from eternity. So I, I spent the last several minutes here going into a very short but not nearly exhaustive enough of a study on this topic. So why did I do it? Well, it's because I believe this teaching comes with some very real and important implications as well as practical applications to our lives. It's not just a Bible study. When we read the When we read the scriptures, we have to say, well, what are the implications for me? What are, the, what are the practical applications for me? That's what we should do every time we sit down to read. Uh, just Even just a simple Bible story from the Old Testament. We need to see, how does that apply to us? And and so, this doctrine, I mean, it's special to me. And I've talked about it a lot over the years. I've written about it. And uh, it's also historically considered to be very important, too. Martin Luther... Martin Luther himself said that justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. Luther, of course, is most famous for his stand against the oppression and the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. In particular, he's most famous for his stance on justification by faith alone, not works. Which means justification by faith means we come to our knowledge of our justification before God in Christ through faith and faith alone, not and nothing but faith. I and mean, it's not through our works that we become aware of what Christ has done for us. And and it's critical that we understand this, for salvation were to come to us, or knowledge of our salvation were to come to us in any other way, it's not a true, it's not a true saving knowledge. If you think you can earn your way into a saving knowledge with Christ, you're sorely mistaken. Yet, sadly, so many people today still think they can earn their justification, just like those Pharisees. But I don't think Luther really went far enough on justification. He got the experiential aspect of it down. He got it down pat, I think. And he managed to explain our perspective of justification, I think, quite well. But he didn't get into, into too much what, from God's perspective. The teaching of justification from eternity is really about God's perspective. And, it, and it's such a sweet revelation of grace to me to know that our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the Lord, our righteousness from all of eternity. It, it brings me such joy. The, the implication for me is I know I'm accepted and beloved from before the foundation of the world. In and of myself, I'm nothing but a giant ball of sin. But before the world began, I've been accepted. I've been seen as justified. I was accepted when Christ died on the cross for me. I was already accepted. I was accepted before I was even born or heard the call of the gospel. I was never in danger of falling into hell. My surety had already paid my sin debt. And I'm accepted even when my heart waxes cold in unbelief and wanes in this fallen world. And this acceptance as a righteous person before the Lord, it's not going to change. The Lord's not going to stop loving me. He's not going to stop accepting me. God's view of me is immutable and not subject to any change. And I have no worries about falling out of favor with him. His mind is set like a stone. The events of time cannot change his mind. And that's exactly because the events of our time are, exactly, are happening exactly as He decreed them to happen. I'm accepted in God's Son. You are accepted in God's Son if you believe. I'm righteous. If you believe you're righteous, I'm accepted. I'm justified, I'm pardoned, and I'm accepted and holy as Christ is holy. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And because of this, nobody, no, no corrupt judge can charge my soul with sin. And that's exactly what this teaching on justification for eternity means to me. And to me, that gives me such sweet relief. And uh, that's, the, that's the main practical application of that, that teaching to me. But uh, I'm gonna close the, the sermon out now. Um, and you know, the last couple sermons I've had, I can't seem to avoid reciting a poem to you. So I've got a little poem I'll read and then we'll close out the service. All right, it's not very good, but it explains how I feel. As time goes on, I've learned to see the many facets of justification you see. From God's perspective, it starts in eternity, where his will to justify his people has always been free. He loves his people, we understand, and his eyes were already complete and grand. For God sees all things from start to end, And in his mind, we were justified, my friend. Then Christ came, walked on earth's floor, his death and resurrection, our souls he bore. For all believers, this is justification's pinnacle. And we obtain salvation from Christ alone, the miracle. At conversion, justification we receive by faith. It brings peace to our conscience, assurance in place. It's not our faith, but Christ on the cross, the object of our justification without any loss. On Judgment Day, we'll be declared righteous before all. A day of glory will answer the call to inherit the kingdom from the start prepared and receive the crown of righteousness, God's love shared. These are the different views, the aspects of truth, of God's justification that we hold with proof, may we always remember in all we do that our justification is found in Christ alone, forever true. So, thanks for listening to me tonight. I really appreciate that. And uh, we're going to close out tonight's service with a hymn. It is um, The Solid Rock. Let's see what... Number is that? That is number 272.